Hi, everybody. Welcome back to JCM Prepare the Way. My name is Carol, and I just want to thank you all for tuning into our podcast. But especially today, we have a very interesting podcast episode on angels and demons, angelic activity around us, but also demonic activity around us. And I don't know about you, but the spiritual atmospheres around us right now are so charged up. It is so important for us to be able to discern what is actually going on around us. So hopefully this podcast uh, will be helpful to you. And as you can tell, I'm by myself. Mallory has officially taken her break to have her baby. So we bless her in that and we wish her well and can't wait to hear all the updates and see the baby once she's able to bring her out. So we just uh, will miss her. Well, because this is probably going to be a little bit longer of an episode because there's so much to cover, I do want to just get started. And I want to state something um, that's kind of the obvious right now, that there are many people, including Christians, that have absorbed a lot of bad information about angels out there. Information that many times is coming from other sources other than God's word. And when we lack understanding of these spiritual beings, sometimes what happens is we can hear the word angel being used by somebody and just automatically assume it means something good, even if it's an angel of a false religion. And so we want to be really careful of that. And we want to try to use this time today to gain a better understanding of the role of angels. Because the Bible has a lot to say about about them, which should help in our understanding. In fact, I think the word angel actually occurs around 250 times in scripture, which is a lot. And I'm not, I'm not addressing 250 scriptures today, but we are going to point out some key scriptures that I think are going to fascinate you and help you and maybe even encourage you to dig deeper yourself. So what I'm going to try to do today is work through this information first by talking about what an angel is but then also going into the different holy angels or holy beings that we encounter in scripture. And then as we move more towards the end is when we're going to talk about the evil beings or the demons and even Satan and the structure of his kingdom. So, but I want to start too by also mentioning something very, very important about angels in general. And this again goes with that bad information that I just mentioned. And it's this. As we work through this information, the point of this podcast is to educate us not to worship angels or to hold them any higher than God. Angels are not to be worshiped. We worship God, God only. And when I say God, excuse me, that can mean many things to many people. So I always like to clarify which God. We worship the God of the Bible and his son, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, of whom it says in the book of Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 to 17, for by him, that's Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, the seen and the unseen, whether thrones or angelic powers or rulers or authorities, all was created through him and for him. He exists before everything. And in him, all holds together. This is who we worship, not a created being, whether that created being is visible or invisible. Psalm 89.6 says it like this. 
For who in the heavens can be compared to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened to the Lord? Or I like to point this out too. It's just another confirmation that we're not to worship angels. And this comes at the end of the book of Revelation, where John falls down at the feet of an angel to worship him. And the angel says, don't worship me. I'm just a fellow servant like you are. Worship God. So we don't worship intermediary beings. We worship the Lord only. And Paul reiterates this clearly in Romans chapter 1 as well. So with all that said and presented, let's begin. Let's start with what is an angel? Well, the Hebrew word for angel is malak. It means someone who is a messenger. Sometimes in the Bible, uh, they can use that word in relation to a human being who is sent on a mission as a messenger. For example, the book of Malachi is actually malaki, my messenger. That's what it is in Hebrew. But the majority of the time in the word of God, the word angel is actually used as the name for a supernatural being being a messenger. And this supernatural being is created by God and is not flesh and blood. And these angelic beings in most cases are his messengers. But not only that, they also have great power and great authority, as you'll soon see. They assist God in working out his will on the earth. It's incredible. So because we have so much to cover, let's start digging into examples of how these angels are messengers and how they are great in their power and authority. First of all, there are angels in the Bible that bring messages, they're messengers, and they bring those messages in the form of announcements. I'm sure the first thing that maybe came into your mind is the angels that announced the birth of Jesus when the shepherds were in the field. But there's also an angel in Revelation chapter 14 that proclaims the good news to those who dwell on the earth as he is flying through the sky. There's another angel that makes an announcement in Revelation 14 verse 8 that Babylon is fallen. And then there's angels in Acts chapter 1 verse 11 that announce to the disciples, quit looking up. The same Jesus that you just saw ascend into heaven is going to come back the same way. And so angels make announcements. And then there are angels that bring messages that are more personal, such as the angel Gabriel to Mary, right? Or these angels that come into the city of Sodom and they meet Lot, and they're bringing a very personal message that God is about to destroy the city. Or what about the angel in Daniel chapter 10 that meets up with Daniel, bringing him a personal message as well, which we'll go into later. And so angels can bring something very personal. And then there are angels in the Bible that are sent to interact with people, such as mentioned in the book of Hebrews where it says in Hebrews, I believe it's 13:2, do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. What a profound thought that is, that angels are in that close of proximity to us that we may even be entertaining angels on occasion. 
This makes me think of the Old Testament when Abraham met three angels and he, or they look like men, but they were angels and he ended up cooking for them. Or the angels I just mentioned that came into Sodom and met Lot, Lot housed those angels. He made them a feast and baked them unleavened bread. They ate, they spent the night, right? And so it is, it's such a profound thought that sometimes if we're entertaining strangers, we are unwittingly entertaining angels. So that to me is kind of an encouragement. I mean, and this is how it worked back then, right? I mean, there were times when people didn't know they were in the presence of an angel. I'm sure some of us have been in the presence of angels and had no idea. I mean, Lot saw men approaching the city and invited them to stay with him. Did he know he was entertaining angels? He calls them lords in the verse. Was it because of how they were dressed or how they carried themselves? We don't really know, but it's, a, you know, it's just something to think about. But then there are angels who bring messages of judgment. For instance, again, back to those angels that came to Sodom, they ultimately blinded perverse men who were trying to come into Lot's house. Or what about the destroying angel that was sent to destroy Jerusalem in 1 Chronicles 21? Or how angels release judgments on earth in the book of Revelation? There are angels who have authority over fire in Revelation 14, verse 18. Or how about the angel in Revelation that was given a sickle to gather grape clusters from the earth and throw them into the winepress of the wrath of God to be stomped? I mean, this is incredible. But then there are angels, I love this, that are sent on missions to fight on behalf of God and man. And one such story I love is the story of the angel that helped King Hezekiah when he was coming against the king of Assyria, Sennacherib. One angel defeated an army of 185,000 men. And we're going to go into that in a little bit. Or how about when God sent an angel to shut the lion's mouths when Daniel was cast into the lion's den? Or how about this one? Peter, in Acts chapter 12, verses 6 through 10, Peter was thrown in jail and he was heavily guarded. And scripture reads like this. Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, while guards before the gate were keeping watch over the prison. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He poked Peter on the side and woke him up saying, Get up, quick! And the chains fell off his hands. Then the angel said to him, get dressed and put on your sandals. And he did so. Then he tells him, put on your cloak and follow me. Peter went out and kept following him. He didn't know that what was happening with the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. That's interesting. After they passed a first guard and a second, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them by itself. They went out and walked along a narrow street. Suddenly, the angel left them. And that's out of the Tree of Life translation as well. So there are angels among us. I just love that. There have been from the very beginning and will continue until the close of the age. But let's keep going. In addition to the ones I just mentioned, there are others with specific names. 
For example, we might call them archangels, but your Bible might call them princes like Michael or Gabriel or in the Apocrypha, which are the books of the Bible that are found in the Catholic Bible as well. Uh, Raphael and other angels are named as archangels. Then there are spiritual beings that are called cherubim and seraphim. And these are spiritual beings who are actively engaged with the throne of God. Then there are those who the Bible calls ministering spirits. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13 to 14, it reads like this. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies my footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? So we have angels ministering spirits to the heirs of salvation. That's followers of Christ. That's encouraging. Which brings me to the next one. And this is a big question a lot of people have. What about guardian angels? Well, the word guardian is specific, isn't specifically mentioned, but maybe let's look at it as angels who protect us and help us. At least it gives me great comfort um, to believe that when I pray to the Lord, that I am being protected by him, that my children are, my family is, the people I care about. I think about that passage we just read about Peter, for example, being delivered from jail. That's evidence enough that, yes, angels are here to help and protect us. But let's look at a couple more. How about Jesus? After he faced the devil in the desert, it says angels came and ministered to him. I like that. Or how about Psalm 34, 7? The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. Or how about this passage in Matthew 18, 10? This is very popular to justify guardian angels. Jesus is warning actually about offending little ones. And part of his explanation is because, quote, their angel always sees the face of my father. Now, when you read that whole passage in its whole context, so back that up, I encourage you to start at the beginning of Matthew 18. You discover that he's talking about believers and how believers are to come to him like little children. I, I do encourage you to read that in its fuller context, but still, it's evidence that there are heavenly angels with us that look upon the face of our father. You know, when I was growing up, uh, I, most of you know, I'm the last of 11. And so there were six of us girls and we shared a bedroom and hanging in our bedroom was a wooden block that had this beautiful picture, an old picture of a guardian angel. Some of you are going to know exactly what I'm talking about. It's this female angel walking behind two children as they go over a bridge. And we had that hanging up in our room. And that was my first experience as a little child, understanding that there were angels around us that protected us. And so it, there, there is something very comforting and encouraging to that. And so that's my take on guardian angels. And, but then there are angels that sometimes are called the angel of the Lord. And these are beings in scripture that are described as angels, but sometimes they allude to the fact that maybe it's the Lord himself. For instance, 
the angel of the Lord appearing to Moses at the burning bush, right? You ever thought about that? Or what about the angel of the Lord visiting Hagar by a spring in the wilderness? Or what about the three men standing nearby to visit Abraham? I mentioned this earlier. They were coming to give him a message. And some assume these three men to be the Father, the pre-incarnate Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. Or what about the man wrestling with Jacob in Genesis chapter 32? The prophet Hosea, he's called an angel. But Jacob says, I've seen God face to face. Or how about the man standing before Joshua in Joshua chapter 5? He has a sword drawn in his hand, right? The commander of the Lord's army. Some say this is a pre-incarnate Jesus too. So those are just some examples. And so I hope that gives you an idea of angels and the different types of activity that is occurring throughout the Holy Scriptures. I just love how God employs angels to help govern the world in this way. And that a big part of that is in assisting us, believers. Gosh, to think that he allows the supernatural world to intersect with the human world, it's truly extraordinary. Extraordinary is <laughs> really remarkable to me. But let's continue because there's still more. What are heavenly hosts? Do you ever wonder that? Well, in scripture, God is called the Lord of hosts. In Hebrew, the word host is Savaot. So he, so some people, you might hear people say Yahweh Savaot or Jehovah Savaot, or some people just might say Savaot. Either way, it's the Lord of hosts and hosts being armies. So there is a military connotation. These hosts are Yahweh's army. Our Lord, the Lord of hosts, commands the armies of heaven. What a comforting thought that is when you look at wars and rumors of wars taking place in the earth, right? There is no earthly military ranking anywhere that can even come close to outranking God in this. He is the Lord of hosts. He is perfect he is wise. He is a just commander. He is a picture of strength and power and authority and restraint when needed. And so these angels, they fight for God, but they also give him praise. There's evidence of many passages of scripture. I can't go into those right now, but that give him praise, how his heavenly hosts praise him. So they fight for him and they worship him. It's powerful. But let's look at a couple examples of how these heavenly hosts are at work and how they fight for the Lord. Take, for example, I mentioned this, 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verses 15 to 16. And God sent an angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. Think about that. As he was destroying, the Lord looked and relented of the disaster and said to the angel who was destroying it, it is enough. Now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord stood by the threshing floor of Ornam, the Jebusite. In other words, this angel stopped and waited for any further commands. And what happened next in this verse? 
Then David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven, having in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. So David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell on their faces. This is a good time to remind all of us, friends, that God will use any instrument he wants to bring about judgment over a nation or over a city. In the book of Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, it says that he used King Nebuchadnezzar to destroy Jerusalem. He was his instrument of justice. It wasn't for the sake of just destroying Jerusalem, but it was for the sake of his people to repent and return to him. Jesus spent 40 years prophesying this message, repent and return, until finally they still wouldn't listen, so God sent his instrument of judgment. And you know, that's a lesson for us. Sometimes things have to become difficult enough for us in order to wake up. And I truly believe that's what's happening now. I believe not all, but many believers in America have been asleep at the wheel and things are shaking and shaking and shaking and shaking all around us. And we have to wake up. The people in Israel at the time abandoned all holiness and they were called to repent and return to him. And maybe that's true for us here. We have abandoned holiness. We are abandoning our Lord and we need to repent and return to him because guess what? Things will get worse until we do. And he can use any instrument he wants to bring us to our knees. An angel with sword drawn over a city or a nation or a nation sent to invade. It's his decision. But the point being about being the Lord of hosts, he commands his angel armies. The prophet Daniel says it like this. He does according to his will in the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? Ponder that. But when we are on his side of things, friends, we are not alone in our battles. And that is a comfort. God has a large number of celestial beings at his disposal. That's why every day when I pray, I pray, command your angel armies concerning us this day. I pray that over my family. I pray that over the place where I live. I pray that over the city near where I live. I prayed over our state, over our nation. Command your angel armies concerning us, Lord. Another example of him being Lord of hosts takes me to the story I mentioned early too about Sennacherib, which I want to tie into with a story of Jesus and the Gospels. You see, when Jesus was getting arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, the servant of the high priest had his ear cut off by one of the men with Jesus. Remember that? And Jesus told him to put his sword away. But then Jesus said this, Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my father, and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? Have you ever really pondered that statement that Jesus made and how significant of a statement that was? 12 legions of of angels. What is that exactly? What does that equate to? 
Well, before I answer that, let's go to 2 Kings chapter 19, the story of Sennacherib. King Hezekiah was being threatened by the king of, of Assyria, Sennacherib. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, and scripture tells us that an angel was sent and then killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. That's in verse 35. So an angel of the Lord killed 185,000 men of Sennacherib's army. And before you go into why does he have to kill anybody, you have to study how vicious and evil the Assyrians were to understand why this was a big deal and why probably why it was necessary. But hang on to that thought for just a moment. This angel killed 185,000 men. And let's go back to that statement Jesus made. Jesus said his father would provide him more than 12 legions of angels to deliver him if he asked. Well, one legion of angels is calculated to be between 5 to 10,000 angels. Some people say 5 to 6,000. Either way, most scholars agree on this number. So if that's the case, let's do some calculations on how big of a statement this really is. Let's use 5,000 to be on the safe side for our calculations. So 5,000 angels in one legion. Jesus mentions 12 legions. So 5,000 times 12 is what? 60,000 angels, right? So 60,000 angels for 12 legions. Now going back to Sennacherib. If one angel can smite an army of 185,000 men, what can 60,000 angels do? Well, let's see. 60,000 angels times 185,000 equals around 11 billion people. This means if Jesus wanted to, he could have asked his father to send 12 legions of angels which according to our simple calculation would be enough angels called to his aid, able to literally wipe out the population of the ancient world back then. That's being Lord and commander of the heavenly hosts. But as Lord and commander, that's also showing great restraint not to do that. Because Jesus is long-suffering towards us. It is so great, his long-suffering. He desires that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. I think about that even in modern day. As of November 2022, the world population was at 8 billion. 12 legions is still enough angels to even wipe out the population of mankind today. And yet... He's still waiting. He's still showing restraint for people to repent and return to him. So the angelic hosts, these heavenly hosts, this is no small thing, my friends. And if I may, I just want to give you one more example of this out of Daniel chapter 10. The prophet Daniel had just completed a three week period of mourning where he had been fasting and praying and he found himself on the banks of the Tigris river and he lifted up his eyes and beheld an angel a man that was dressed in linen with a belt of gold around his waist 
He describes his body like yellow jasper, which is like golden in color. His face was like a flash of lightning. I mean, close your eyes and picture this. His eyes were like fiery torches, his arms and feet like burnished brawn, and the sounds of his words like a roar of a multitude. Wow. None of his men with him saw the vision, only Daniel. However, a great terror fell upon his men regardless. They sensed a presence there, and they fled and hid themselves. And so Daniel was left alone with this man. And so great a vision was it that he couldn't even summon any strength. His strength drained from him, the Bible says. His vigor was completely destroyed. Keep that in mind. When you hear stories about people who encounter angels or heavenly beings, right? I'm not saying I don't believe them. But we must use great wisdom and discernment and not just believe every story we hear about an encounter with an angel. Daniel encounters an angel and falls as though dead because it says when he heard the angel's voice, he fell on his face in a deep sleep. That's as if dead with his face to the ground. Much like John in chapter one of Revelation, right? When he beheld Jesus, his Lord, his friend, and he was in his glorified state and said he fell as though dead before Jesus. And then the hand of the man reached out to Daniel and touched him. And he said, don't be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. I've come because of your words. However, The prince of the kingdom of Persia resisted me for 21 days. But behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I had been detained there with the king of Persia. I find it interesting that he was fasting for three weeks, 21 days, right? Mourning, fasting, praying. And from that very first day, the angel was sent. But during the duration of his fast and prayers, there was resistance in the spiritual atmospheres. That's how powerful, friends, the spiritual weapons of prayer and fasting are. The moment you begin to humble yourself before your God and pray and fast, your words are heard. The angel then gave his message to Daniel. But Daniel remained speechless, without strength still, with his face to the ground, until the angel touched him and revived his strength. Then the angel tells him he has to leave to continue fighting the prince of Persia and then next the prince of Greece. See, these princes that he's talking about, these are principalities over nations. These are ruling, evil, fallen angels, principalities over nations. And this angel is part of the heavenly hosts. And he was battling in the heavenlies with this prince of Persia, this principality over Persia, trying to deliver a message back to Daniel. Again, don't think for a moment that if you are genuinely seeking the Lord in prayer and fastings, in humility, that it is not activating a response from heaven. That's why even if you don't feel like anything is happening during a fast, continue, continue to break through. 
This angel was withstood for 21 days until the archangel Michael came to help. Then he had to return, and not only that, face up against the principality over Greece. See, Daniel 10, I love this whole chapter because it shows us that there is a lot going on behind the geopolitical movements that we see all around us, these angelic influences that are administered through people. And our prayers activate a response in that realm, my friends. That's why I'm so passionate about prayer. So guess what? If we're part of a church that is not a praying church, or if we ourselves are not engaged in active prayer, spirit-led prayer, or praying without ceasing, as the Bible tells us to do throughout the day or whatever that looks like for you, or devoted to prayer as the Bible tells us to be, then don't expect much to change in your circumstances or in your sphere of influence or in your country or in your city. If you're not praying, nothing's happening, period. Our weapons are not carnal but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, vain imaginations, and every high and lofty thing that exalts itself above the knowledge of God. Every nation has a principality. I'm sure the U.S. probably has several, the rate we're going. But think of Iran. Think of North Korea. Think of Canada. New Zealand, Australia, Brazil right now. Think of the principalities. Think of the prayers that is needed for these nations around the world. This story in Daniel 10 shows that that there's a greater supernatural intelligence, high-ranking spiritual beings that are fallen. They're evil. They're hostile to God, and they are at work within the structure of a nation because they are at work within the structure of Satan's kingdom. And they're wreaking havoc, and they're keeping people blinded and in deception. And they're using men and women to work through, to pass unholy, unlawful things against the God of the universe. And yet God is fully aware of it as are his heavenly hosts. But they're waiting for us. What is our prayer to be? See, where the Old Testament doesn't give us the hierarchy and structure of that realm, the New Testament does. Paul describes such beings in Ephesians 6 and touches upon again in Colossians 1, which I read earlier. Colossians 1, For by him... All things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. That's New King James Version this time. And it goes on later to say, and he has preeminence over it all. But Ephesians 6 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. How many of you are withstanding right now? That means overcoming, prevailing. 
Or are you drawing back and shrinking in fear? So yes, there is spiritual activity occurring all around us, cosmic battles taking place, and the church needs more than ever to be exercising her spiritual weapons. And I pray that if your church is not, that maybe you are a voice in the wilderness that speaks out to maybe make them see it. So angels are very significant in the Bible. And as you can tell, they have different roles. We shouldn't lump them all into the same category. There's different terminology even used to describe spiritual being. Terms like spirit or holy ones sometimes, or other terms like sons of God, that's in the Old Testament, and hosts. And actually, I'd like to stop here for a second at sons of God. Because I imagine there are those of you out there that are curious about angels in the Old Testament referred to as the sons of God, especially in Genesis chapter 6. But it's mentioned in Genesis chapter 6 and Job chapter 1. In Job 1, 6, it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God, angels, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. We'll go into that when we talk about Satan. This is not talking about men, but angelic beings. And then in Genesis 6, it says it like this. The sons of God, these angels, saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. This too does not refer to men, but to angelic beings. So sons of God is a terminology used to describe angels in the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 6, these angelic beings were accused of procreating with women on the earth, producing mighty men. As we've learned, if angels can take the form of men, we can now see how this was a possibility. According to scripture, they had real offspring. Mighty men, men of renown, it says. In other words, their offspring were well known on the earth. According to scripture, angels by nature are not embodied beings. They are spiritual. Therefore, there is no need to reproduce. And in the afterlife, when we are with the Lord, there is no death in heaven, so there's no need to repopulate. So what was going on? Well, they were doing something that was very, very wrong, horrible, in fact, because they left their nature, their proper domain, what they were created to be, and mixed with something unnatural to their created makeup. Listen to that. They left their proper domain, what they were created to be, and mixed with something unnatural to their created makeup. Both Peter and Jude state it like this in their letters. Jude 1.6 says, And the angels, who did not keep their own position of authority, but deserted their proper place, he has kept in everlasting shackles under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And Peter, 2 Peter chapter 2, 4 through 6. For God did not spare angels when they sinned, but threw them into Sheol. He put them in chains of gloomy darkness to be held until the judgment. 
he did not spare the ancient world. Think about what was taking place. Angels procreating with women, producing offspring. They were producing a different created being, something God did not create. They were forming their own population in a sense, their own creations. There is only one creator. This is why mixing the natural created purpose of a created being with something unnatural, what it's not created to be, is referred to as an abomination to God. That's why God calls bestiality an abomination in scripture. There's a mixing of natural with what is unnatural. And it's a very serious condemnation when something is called an abomination. It means that something is depraved, detestable, disgusting to God. In Romans chapter 1, it speaks about how we are all without excuse when it comes to believing in our creator. Because all we have to do is walk outside and see his glory and his power and his creation. But then after that, Paul speaks very boldly to these believers that he's addressing in Rome. That even despite all that, people became futile in their thoughts. They neither knew God, glorified him, or thanked him. And their foolish hearts were darkened. He says they began to worship the creation rather than the creator. And so he says, therefore, God gave them up to their uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, Paul continues, God gave them up to vile passions. So God gave them up to it. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. This is Romans chapter 1. It's strong language. Strong. And there's more. You can read it for yourself. But the point is this. These angels were doing what was unnatural to their nature. What was unnatural to their makeup, their created design. And it resulted in these angels being locked up in everlasting chains thrown into gloomy darkness until the day of judgment. God did not mess around. Talk about putting a rivalry between a created being and their creator. Let that sink in for a moment, folks. I say this in love. But boy, oh boy, you know, we are a ministry that warns. Today, science is trying to play the role of God. They are allowing things to occur within created boundaries that are pushing the limits of God's patience. Genetic re-engineering. 
We see this in food. We see this in plants. We see this in flowers. We see this in animals. We see this in insects, genetically modified mosquitoes, right? And now people, if you don't like how God made you, they say, you can change it. Be careful out there. I say this in love. Just be careful out there, my friends. Use great discernment and pray that you are not coming against the creator of your soul, of your body. I just read an article about how they have already successfully, scientifically engineered artificial wombs. They're playing God. And it's an abomination. They're messing with the creator's handiwork and it is an abomination to God. But I wanted to bring that up. These sons of God, it was another angel. And there's others. But the last two that I want to address before moving on to fallen angels or demons are the angelic beings known as cherubim and seraphim. You know, these are unique spiritual beings because actually they are known as throne guardians, guardians of God's throne. The first mention of a cherub comes early in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter three, actually. After Adam and Eve are expelled from the Garden of Eden, God places a cherub with a fiery sword in hand at the entrance to the garden to prevent the rebellious couple from returning to paradise and eating from the tree of life. The tree of life was in paradise which was in God's presence. We don't hear about the tree of life anymore until it returns at the end of Revelation, of course, when paradise returns. But the point being, a cherub was guarding the entrance to God's presence. Cherubim are also represented in the tabernacle and later the temple when you study this in the Old Testament. I need to do a I need to do a podcast on the tabernacle. That is so profound. Talk about the shadows of Jesus. Wow. Anyway, these cherubim are positioned on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Their faces are covered by their wings. Exodus 25, 18 to 20 um, explains it like this. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work you shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and the other cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it of one piece with the mercy seat. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and they shall face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. You know, just as the cherubim were placed on the two ends of the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant, so were two angels sitting on the slab on which the body of Jesus was laid. Because where his body had lain represented a new mercy seat. That's in John chapter 20. When you read about the construction of the tabernacle, though, you discover that the cherubim are embroidered into the curtains of even the Holy of Holies. So they're not just on the Ark of the Covenant. They're embroidered into the curtains of the Holy of Holies. And when you read about cherubim in 1 Kings, you read about these enormous statues of cherubim that were posi- they were built and then positioned in the holy place, again, guarding the holy of holies. 
And all of these places, the tabernacle, the temple, the Ark of the Covenant, they're all shadows of Jesus, of course. So when you read this, you begin to recognize that these cherubs are always in the presence of the Lord. You even read about God riding a winged cherub in 2 Samuel 22, 11. So they're just very interesting. And then there are seraphs or seraphim. And that's something I want to say. The I am on these words means plural. So it's either a cherub, singular, or cherubim, plural. Seraph, singular, or seraphim, plural. But seraphs are different. As a verb, seraph means to burn, to literally burn with fire, with an emphasis on burning up. As a noun, it's a bit different. It denotes a sort of a serpent or a viper. And so to the ancient world, to the people that lived back then, this would be like a snake's movement and then the sudden destruction it may inflict. And when you get a snake bite, how it's like flames or like this burning affliction. In fact, in Numbers 21, that story of fiery snakes in the desert, they're attacking the Israelites in the desert. In the Hebrew word, they're called seraphim serpents because it was like fire. But it appears that the seraphim, who became likened to maybe handsome human-like angelic creatures over the centuries, were actually known to Hebrews as snake-like fireballs. Actually, in Hebrew, that word seraphim means burners or destroyers. And so I find it interesting that Isaiah the prophet, you know, when you see and read about his incredible vision of seraphim in, in chapter 6, verse 2, it just... It kind of makes you pause because it's a different type of looking angel. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. These seraphim, they were not only flying above God, but they called out to each other these holy praises, these holy declarations about him. And when you keep reading in that passage, the sound of their voices shake the temple. It's an incredible, incredible scene. And then the seraphim, these burning ones, then take a coal and they purge Isaiah's lips of sin with a burning coal. So having been cleansed by the coals of the seraphim, then Isaiah hears that God is looking for someone to carry his message to the people and Isaiah volunteers for the position. And you know, this is so interesting. I'm looking right now as I'm recording this on my wall in my living room, I have a big painted picture of this scene, this fiery, beautiful seraphim with a coal in its um, hand and Isaiah standing before him. And it was painted by my oldest sister, Karen, who's a phenomenal artist of um, all kinds of beautiful prophetic and Christian paintings. And she gifted me that. And it is stunning because when the light hits it, it literally looks like it's on fire. And it's this powerful picture. And I hung it in my living room because it is such a message to anyone who comes into my house about the power of God, about holiness, about so many things. And I find it interesting, even looking at this picture right now, seraphim have faces, right? Or at least we assume they do, but their wings cover them. So we really don't know what they look like. 
Do they have the faces like the four living creatures in Revelation? We just don't know. And it says they also have feet, but their wings cover their feet. So we really don't know what their feet look like either. And the word they use for feet here is so general, we still don't know anything really about their appearance because they're so covered. Can you imagine, friends, these cherubim and these seraphim, that's why their wings are always covering their face. That's why even on the Ark of the Covenant, their wings cover their face. They're in the presence of God. They are next to the holiest one ever. And they can't look upon him. He's that holy. I mean, it, it's it's a it's a humbling thought for believers. I'm telling you guys, God is after our holiness, humility, and holiness. We must be so reverent in our approach to a holy God. You know, some liken those four living creatures I mentioned in Revelation 4 to the seraphim. And so we don't know if they're related or not, because these four living creatures, they too had six wings. And they too say, holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. And so we don't know if they are a related type of spiritual being, if they're the same, we don't know. But, um, and then the question comes up, well, are seraphim messengers? Well, we don't know that either, except that they are giving proclamations about how holy God is. So they are bringing a message of holiness. And so uh, this is by no means, again, an exhaustive look, but hopefully an introduction to you, to angels, especially these holy angels, as the Bible describes them. Because like I said in the beginning, there's a lot of bad information and deceptive information out there regarding angels. And so with our time left, I'm going to switch gears. I want to just briefly mention, because I know this is running long, the evil spirits, the demons, and even touch upon Satan. You know, angels today, they are worshipped in many places throughout the world, mostly in false religions or in religions that appear Christ-like, but are operating in a mixture out of deception. But what I want to focus on are these false cults or these false religions, false belief systems that have gripped society and are leading people to spiritual and even physical death. And I'm talking about the worship of angels in the new age and the occult. Angels are very popular in the New Age movement, which essentially co-opted the concept of angels from the Abrahamic religions, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. Christianity, we are part of Judaism since we are rooted in Jesus, who was the king of the Jews, just so you know. But anyway, it co-opted the concept from them. And then changed many of the, the traditional beliefs into new attributes and creations. Even the belief that humans can become angels, which is the opposite of what is taught in the Old Testament, the Abrahamic traditions, which teach that angels were created to serve God and humans. Nowhere do we see in the Old or the New Testament, not even in the New Earth and New Jerusalem at the end of Revelation, that humans become angels something to ponder. The new age, the occult, also sees angels as guardians, or another word for it is spirit guides, or energy, or ascended masters. 
Is any of this ringing a bell to some of you that are dabbling in some things? In fact, they believe that Jesus is one of those ascended masters. A lot of false religions out there, folks, proclaim Jesus. But you got to test those spirits. Not did he come and die for mankind, but you got to bring up the atoning work of his blood. Then you'll see where the true division lies, the truth from the lies. Don't be deceived just because someone says they believe in Jesus or calls themselves spiritual. That in no way indicates that they are a true follower of Christ. Let me tell you, spiritual can be and is demonic. Demons are spiritual. So don't be deceived if someone says, I believe in Jesus, but I'm very, very spiritual. They can be dabbling into all kinds of different spiritual realms that are not holy whatsoever. Never forget what James chapter 2 verse 19 says, you believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. James says. Demons know very well who Jesus is and who God is. Jesus saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. They know exactly who he is. They know exactly who the Lord is. They know exactly who Yahweh is. And they tremble. Certain occult practices, such as divination and numerology, for example, have been combined heavily with the work of angels. For example, in the form of angel oracle cards and angel numbers. Angel cards are essentially a variation of the tarot deck, which I can't even, I can't even emphasize enough, my friends. Please don't do tarot cards. The whole purpose of angel cards as a variation, of course, of the tarot deck, but also of tarot cards is for the purpose of divination. I cannot tell you how many times I've heard Christians tell me they use angel cards because they're confused by the word angel in the name of the cards. They're confused by the pretty pictures of angels on the cards. Yes, angels are messengers. And that means fallen angels are messengers too. And I'm going to tell you those fallen angels, those demons, they are going to bring an entirely different message to you than a holy angel will or the Holy Spirit will. To be very careful. These cards, they display angel imagery and words which can throw people off. And card readers profess to make connections with angelic beings as spiritual guides. This is very dangerous for a believer. There's a woman named Doreen Virtue. She made and sold angel cards. In fact, she was a top seller in the occult marketplace for them. She was very well known. She was raised in Christian science and then went into the new age from there where she spent 58 years, 58 years, not knowing there was anything wrong with it. And she became the top-selling New Age author at the top-selling New Age publishing house and seemed to have everything she wanted, she said, until Jesus got a hold of her. 58 years in this, and our precious Lord got a hold of her heart, you guys. When she started reading the Bible, she got to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 10 to 12, and she said this shifted everything. 
And it reads like this. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his or her daughter pass through the fire. That means child sacrifice. Or anyone who practices witchcraft. Or a soothsayer, which is a fortune teller. Or anyone who interprets omens. Or a sorcerer. Or one who conjures spells. Look at all the witchcraft around us, my friends. Or a medium. Or a spiritist. Or one who calls up the dead. For all who do these things are an abomination. There's that word again to the Lord. And because of these abomination, abominations, the Lord your God drives them out from before you. And she said she read that and realized then that she was a sinner in need of a savior. And she surrendered her life to Jesus Christ, made him her Lord and savior and left the new age. She no longer makes or sells any of this stuff. If people still have her stuff, they probably sell it, she said, but she has no part of it. Rather, what she does now is bring the message of Jesus Christ to people. So yes, angel worship is prevalent in the new age and the occult. And may I also bring up one more thing about this. A friend of mine who was a high ranking person in Reiki, who started having these strange visitations from some kind of a spiritual being. And ultimately, the night that she was completely delivered of it, Uh, It was a very frightening scene for her. This false angel, this false spiritual being that, that was used in the Reiki healing revealed itself to her. And she pled the blood of Jesus and got completely delivered, got that thing cast away from her and never had another problem again. So yes, this stuff is real. Make no mistake and don't be deceived. The new age occult is big business. And it's making a lot of people very rich. They are happily taking your money while keeping you in darkness and bondage. I saw that firsthand when a medium came to my town charging hundreds of dollars to call up the dead. So we had to pay hundreds of dollars to come and have this woman call up Uncle Joe or whoever it is. And I remember standing in the lobby of this event center praying as I watched these people arrive already looking dead themselves, spiritually. If this is you, if you have been practicing the worship of angels through the occult, through New Age, or even just a religion that you're in and you've been taught that it's okay, there's hope. You have to repent. You have to return back to the living God, the creator of all things. Repent in the Greek means change your mind. Repent in Hebrew means turn and go the other way. Think differently. Your Lord, the Jesus Christ, he is your salvation. He is the Lord of hosts, the true God who commands his holy angels concerning you, not false angels. He desires good for you. Surrender your life to him, to Jesus, and begin a fresh start today. When you worship false angels, friends, through false religions, we're actually worshiping demons and giving them an open door to work in our life. I know because I was in deliverance ministry for a period of time, and I've prayed with many people to be set free, and Jesus sets them free, and whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Which brings me to the question, which will lead into demons, what about Satan? I don't like to give him a stage, but we should address a couple of things before closing uh, concerning him and his demonic agents. First thing I want to say about him is he is not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere all the time. 
There is no scriptural support on that whatsoever. God alone is omnipresent. Angels are not. They are created beings and created beings are not omnipresent. They are sent out. Satan is a created being. He is a fallen created being, a fallen angel. So he roams. He walks the earth. Job chapter one, I told you I was going to come back to this. Verses six through seven. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Hmm. Consider that also when you read Matthew chapter four, verse 11. After Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness, it says this, then the devil left him and behold, angels came and ministered to him. So Satan left and angels came. Neither are omnipresent. Only God can fill the universe. That's why Psalm 139 says, where can I go from your spirit? He's everywhere. However, when it comes to Satan, to take him seriously, we know and have learned already how powerful angels are, even fallen angels. Satan is a dark, powerful spiritual being, very powerful. And he has his own agents, his own army, a well-organized army of demon powers, what is believed to be other fallen angels under him. And they are sent out upon the earth into the atmospheres around us, or even into people if the door has been opened. I have encountered people under demonic control. I have seen things manifest. When I was ministering in Africa years back, and I've told this story before, but I'm just going to say it again in a very short way. And we laid hands, I laid hands on a young girl who we had been ministering to for a few days. Now we were there to minister to women with AIDS. And I'm going to tell you, I literally witnessed possession. A demon had possessed this girl, took her on the ground, was fighting fighting this girl because it did not want to leave her. I won't go into the details of it, but we prayed and the Lord gave a word of knowledge in that moment. That's why I do. I, I do believe the gifts of the spirit boy. When we are humbled to our Lord, he can work through a person for anything. And he gave me a word of knowledge. And I, I spoke something to this woman in the heat of a battle and boom, that thing left her. It left her. And she sat up. And our team came and ministered to her. And the several of us that were there praying for this girl as it was taking her across the floor stood and walked away just in awe of the power of the name of Jesus Christ. But just the power that is at work. But also the realness of demonic spirits, how they can take hold of somebody. So nobody can ever tell me. I've seen it firsthand. No one can ever tell me that that stuff's not real. 
you know, eyes truly are the window to the soul of a person. This little girl, I wouldn't say little girl, she had three kids, but she looked like a little girl. Um, she never could look at us. She always had her head down. See, our eyes are always filled with light, Jesus, or they're filled with darkness. And when you encounter the eyes of a person filled with darkness, filled with demons, I'm going to tell you, friends, it is a look of hatred of which you have never seen before. It is a look of deep disdain for everything we stand for. And so we must, in times like this, exercise great courage and wisdom, humility and authority over such things. I was also confronted with a possessed woman on the Capitol steps of Denver years back. Whether her possession came by drugs, I have no idea. But it was National Day of Prayer, this beautiful group of people. We had been down there all day from worshipers to all kinds of wonderful people that were praying prayers over our state and over our city all day. We were there nine to four. And so I went up to close in a prayer declaring the names of God, which is one of my favorite things I always like to pray. When all of a sudden I look up and coming up from the street, I see a woman boldly walking towards me, going up all the steps, walking straight up the steps to the podium to where I was and declaring to me in the most ugly voice that this was her neighborhood, that she's assigned there. And she kept holding her ears told me to stop saying his name, stop saying his name. This is my territory. This is my neighborhood. She said a lot more that I won't share here. And it's a very intimidating moment if that happens to you. And I got to hand it to the precious pastors that were there on site, how they recognized it for what it was. They calmly stood kneeled on the bottom of the steps as they, in great wisdom, watched the scene unfold before they took action. And so I stood there, and in my spirit, as this thing's talking to me, I'm asking the Holy Spirit, what do I do? And un- it was it was like almost unbeknownst to me, it was like, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Nazareth to be silent. And I prayed a couple more things, and instantly... It was as if a muzzle came over her. And when the pastors who were kneeling on the steps saw it, they all got up. You have pastors that run prison ministries. You have pastors over many churches. And they came up and they waited for the right time to intervene very calmly, very lovingly, and led her off stage. And she couldn't talk. She kept looking back at me. Her eyes were all discolored. And when she was gone, I asked the Lord in my heart, now what do I do? You know, because you got all these people looking at you. We just had this scene. But I heard in my spirit, continue. And so I finished the prayer. And that's the point. It makes me think of Jesus, you know, in Luke chapter 10. Do you remember when he sent out the 70 and they came back? And they said, Lord, even the demons are subject subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing by shall any means hurt you. 
Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. We have the authority, friends, over all the power of the enemy in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That doesn't mean we're going to escape persecution or escape bad things that are happening to us. But when we are confronted with some kind of a spiritual being that is unholy, that has, it is possessing someone's soul, we have a responsibility Uh, as a child of God, as an ambassador for Christ, to speak up and exercise authority in his name to set that person free. Those pastors at the Capitol prayed over that woman. I don't know what ultimately happened, but in such great love, they ministered to her. So powerful is his name that it delivered that girl in Africa. Maybe I was sent on that trip trip simply for that one moment of time where our lives intersected. So powerful is his name that the government in Israel tried to prohibit John and Peter from ministering in his name in Acts chapter 4 because they recognized it had authority. It healed a crippled man. I mean, that's... And that's what we're up against. We're up against evil spirits. When you go out your door, friends, and you feel the spiritually charged atmospheres out there, ask the Lord to command his angels concerning you to be encamped around you because you're coming up against other things, other unholy entities. You need to be wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove. You don't go out. We go out as sheep among wolves. But here's the thing. I don't rejoice that those things responded to a prayer, that they were muzzled or that that thing got cast out. Rather, I rejoice that my name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So we don't rejoice that we have this authority. Rather, we walk in that authority. We don't exalt it. We just live it out. Does that make sense? Peter tells us to resist Satan. How do we do that? When we encounter demons or demonic influence, when we exercise wisdom and discernment over those things, when we respond accordingly, that's how we are resisting Satan. Because 1 Peter chapter 5 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. We're not alone in this. Every blood-bought believer who has humbled themselves before God is experiencing this. But it also doesn't mean that we are personally resisting Satan himself because he's not omnipresent. No, he comes and goes. He leaves and looks for another opportunity. But there are demons that are assigned to attack, to intimidate, to deceive, to steal, to kill, destroy. Whether it's physical, spiritual, emotional, whether it's your joy, your love, your faith, your hope. But when we resist steadfast in the faith, when we withstand, like Paul says in Ephesians 6, then we are, in a sense, resisting Satan because we are resisting his kingdom. Never forget that. 
and never forget the authority you have in him, in his name. So Satan is powerful, but he's not omnipresent. Don't give him more credit than he deserves. And demons? Are they fallen angels? Well, that's not a precise description in scripture, but many people refer to them as that. But they are hostile. They are evil. And they are supernatural. The Bible doesn't state plainly who they are, but we can come to a calculated conclusion based on interpretation of language used in Hebrew and Greek. What we can gather from this is that since Satan is a spirit, he is considered the the supreme spirit of evil, leading other apostate angels who are often called devils. Let me say that again because I feel like I stumbled all over myself. Satan is a spirit, a fallen angel, and he is considered the supreme spirit of evil leading other apostate angels who are often called devils. And that word devil or demon is literally translated from a Greek word that means distributor of fortunes. Well, I'm going to tell you right off the bat, I don't want anything they're distributing. Because a lot of times what they want, they want to convince you that what they have is something you think you need. They distribute pornography. They distribute, they work through people to distribute drugs. They work through people to distribute deception. They operate through many means, including people, people with unregenerated spirits, those without Christ. In today's culture, they can manifest in many different ways. They can manifest through interest in the occult, like we mentioned before. By using a channeler to communicate messages from the dead. You know, I think that's the thing that made me so angry one time when there was a tragedy in our town and people were going to these psychologists to try to process through what happened and people were having them call up the dead in these sessions. That's evil. It's a channeler. And they're trying to let you make you think that you can communicate with the dead. And I I want you to think like seances or the tarot cards or the poem readers or the shamans that's become real popular lately or mediums. What they do is they channel through what's called familiar spirits, spirits that are familiar with you. Remember, these are spirits of old. They've been around since the beginning. That's how they deceive. Leviticus 19.31 says, give no regard to mediums and familiar spirits. Do not even seek after them to be defiled by them. I am the Lord, your God. Don't go looking somewhere for answers when you have the Lord God himself for your answer. Because this is what they do. They share a couple of things about you that no one else would know from your past because they're familiar. And once you hear those things, well, that's the hook. Then all of a sudden you take what they say is truth Then they give you a prophecy about your future and you believe it because they were right about your past. It's deception. When they work through other people, they can influence you to think about things and entertain things and participate in things you'd never dream of doing. Think about that phrase, the devil made me do it. Well, that's pretty accurate. They can be pretty influential. And I believe, and this is just my personal opinion, you can throw it out, I believe the church has done a great disservice at not teaching on the dangers of any of this stuff, of these evil influences, these evil spirits. 
While witchcraft is the fastest growing religion in the U.S. right now, and I'm sure probably many places in the world, many believers know nothing about how to come against it. In fact, they are afraid of it or they're mixing their faith in Christ with it in many ways. And they're bringing destruction upon themselves because their eyes are not filled with light. And, they, and when our eyes are not filled with light, we can't see clearly. And this also applies to doctrines of demons within the church. And there's a lot of that going on too. Many mainstream preachers are not offering a biblical gospel, but a false gospel. One like humanistic moralism, for example. Moralists don't need the biblical gospel, as they've already self-justified themselves by their own works. I'm a good person. It is only sinners who need the true gospel. That is moralistic, therapeutic deism, where they believe good people will go to heaven. It's a doctrine of demons. Don't think demons are in the church. Think again. There is all kinds of doctrines going on in the modern day church. And I want to close with this. And again, I apologize this went long. But this was from... 1 Corinthians 6.3, and it does bear mentioning, we only have about a minute left, where Paul makes a startling statement when he's rebuking believers in Corinth for coming against each other, how we can't settle our own affairs. And he says, do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? What will that look like when the time comes? When we are called to judge angels, no one is really sure what this looks like. But one thing, at least I can speak for myself, that I gather from this, I want to be able to clearly discern to discern the difference between holy angels and evil, between heavenly hosts and doctrines of demons. And I pray that for all of us. Well, I hope this has blessed you or helped you in some way. And uh, I'd like to close with just a declaration from Psalm 103. And it reads like this. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, you, his angels, who excel in strength, who do his word, heeding the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you, his hosts, you ministers of his who do his pleasure. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. God bless you all today. Take care. Music